Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The stunning tale of an unwitting assassin. She's lying on the platform in front of her uh, and the blood is gushing from her leg. The revolutionary roots of an iconic figure. She was arrested and sentenced to death by the guillotine and the uncommon origins of a commonplace product. They were nervous for the fate of their company and the fate of their country. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. New York City, founded in 1624 by Dutch colonists, this thriving metropolis is now home to more than 8 million people. And in downtown Manhattan stands an institution dedicated to documenting over 400 years of the city's rich history. Here at the Municipal Archives, visitors can find family records, files chronicling New York's most prolific criminals, as well as over 1 million photographs. But there's one image kept here which tells a shocking tale. The artifact is a black and white negative, eight by 10. Within the image, you see something that's about the size of a shoebox. According to anthropologist April Strickland, the object in this image holds the key to an intriguing story. This photograph shows a device that was used in a very cunning and devious plan. So what's depicted in this image? And what surprising role did it play in this sinister incident? December 26, 1946, New York City. As the Christmas shopping season winds down, 26-year-old department store clerk Pearl Lusk is on her way home after being laid off from her job. So Pearl's trying to figure out what she's going to do with her life now that she's unemployed. But Pearl's spirits are lifted when she catches the eye of a tall, dark stranger. Pearl saw this man, thought he was one of the most handsome men she'd ever seen. Alan LaRue is charming and flirtatious. 
and the next thing Pearl knows, the pair are enjoying drinks at a bar. When Pearl shares that she's recently lost her job, LaRue makes a surprising offer. He explains that he's a private detective working on a tough case, and he could use her help. He suspects this young woman, Olga, who's a secretary at a local hat company, of stealing some jewels and that she's hidden them, she's pinned them inside her clothes. LaRue asks Pearl to take an undercover photo of the suspected jewel thief, but he explains that she won't be using just any old camera. It's an x-ray camera that is going to be hidden in a box, and this is going to show the jewels that Olga has hidden underneath her clothes. Thrilled at the idea of catching a jewel thief, Pearl immediately accepts, and they arrange to meet again on New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, 1946, LaRue gave Pearl a box. It appeared to be a Christmas present wrapped in red and green paper, and on the side of it, it there was a hole, and then something was protruding out of it. There was a little wire with a loop on it hanging from the bottom. LaRue told Pearl to hold the box at waist level, um, to pull the wire, and that this would somehow capture the image, the x-ray image of Olga holding these jewels that she'd pinned inside her skirt. Later that morning, armed with a camera and a photo, Pearl IDs the suspect and follows her into the subway. So Pearl follows her into the city and does all of this as she's instructed to do by LaRue. Pearl's moment to shine is almost upon her. She inches closer to Olga and prepares to take the photo. When Pearl pulled the wire loop, the package jumped out of her hand. She heard a loud bang, and then she saw Olga fall to the train platform. Pearl sees Olga lying on the platform in front of her, uh, and the blood is gushing from her leg. Pearl sees that a sawed-off shotgun has fallen from the box, a negative photo of which now resides at the New York Municipal Archives. It suddenly dawns on Pearl what's just happened. Pearl was horrified, surprised. It seems the charming man who claimed to be a private eye has framed her. But who is he? And why has he made her an unwitting assassin? A wounded Olga insists she knows the man behind the plot to kill her. It was her crazed ex-husband, Alphonse Rocco. Olga is quickly rushed to the hospital. There, she tells the police about her violent ex. Alphonse and Olga had met at a dance in Brooklyn in 1944 and married soon after. But it wasn't long before their relationship soured. Alphonse and Olga had a very violent relationship. He was very jealous of her. Eventually, she ended up leaving him because of this. But leaving Alphonse only made matters worse. Alphonse was extremely unhappy about Olga leaving him. He would show up outside her work. He would call her repeatedly. He would show up outside her parents' house. He stalked her. So persistent was Alphonse's rage that after several violent incidents, including holding her at gunpoint and threatening her life, the authorities intervened. The police began to monitor Olga's house and sometimes escorted her to work. Once the police were involved, uh, Alphonse had to find other creative ways to work around them being there. Detectives who have been tracking Alphonse for months now suspect that he used Pearl because he couldn't get close to Olga and shoot her himself. At the precinct, Pearl is shown a photo of Alphonse and immediately identifies him as the man who gave her the box. 
Authorities swiftly moved to track him down. They searched for him for six days. Eventually, they found him upstate in the Catskills, sleeping outside underneath a tree. The police immediately order Alphonse to surrender. A gunfight ensues, and Alphonse is eventually shot and killed. Finally, Olga is free of a man so obsessed he wanted to take her life. However, she's forced to live with a daily reminder of that fateful day on the subway. Olga ended up losing her left leg, but at the very least, she didn't have to live in fear for her life after her husband was killed. As for Pearl, the innocent young woman who almost became a killer, she is never charged for shooting Olga. In fact, out of this tragedy comes an unlikely friendship. Interestingly, Pearl and Olga became friends for the rest of their lives. And today, this image, stored away in the municipal archives in New York, serves as a chilling reminder of one of the most callous crimes in the city's history. Just a few miles across Manhattan, the world-famous Times Square is home to 40 Broadway theaters and hundreds of eye-catching billboards. But amidst this hustle and bustle, one iconic institution seems to be frozen in time, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. One of 14 locations worldwide, Madame Tussauds showcases over 200 lifelike wax sculptures, allowing visitors to get up close and personal to their favorite celebrities, politicians, and historical figures. But hidden among the famous faces is one important yet likely unrecognizable figure. It is a figure of a woman who stands about 60 inches tall. She's dressed in a black bonnet, black dress, and is very unassuming in her manner. But according to curator Kieran Lancini, this woman's passion and tenacity propelled her from a life of a commoner to the center of a violent revolution. She was a really clever and ingenious woman. Who was this visionary woman? And how did her tumultuous life sculpt an entertainment empire? 1770, Paris. France, ruled by King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette, finds itself in the midst of an escalating fiscal and social crisis. While the aristocratic class lives a life of decadent excess, the poor are barely scraping by. There was anger in the streets about the whole social environment in France at that time. Against this chaotic backdrop, one ambitious teenager strives for a better life. Her name is Marie Groscholz. Marie Groscholz was interested in politics. She was interested in art and a lot of things that a lot of people thought were above her station. Marie's mother works as a housemaid for Dr. Philippe Curtius, a physician who has gained notoriety for sculpting lifelike models of the rich and famous. Sensing the raw talent in the budding artist, Curtius takes Marie on as his apprentice. The young protege proves to be a voracious learner, and by 17, she's creating pieces that rival those of her mentor. Before long, the prodigious Marie is sculpting some of the world's most renowned public figures. She met with Benjamin Franklin and also Voltaire. So all these incredible icons of that day she created. And soon, Marie gets an opportunity, the likes of which she's never dreamed. She was approached to be the art tutor to Madame Elizabeth, who was the sister to Louis XVI. 
In the blink of an eye, the teenage daughter of a housemaid is thrust into the company of royalty. She became part of the court, basically, as a private confidant to Madame Elizabeth. Over the next decade, Marie's affinity for her regal benefactors grows. She saw a different side to them than what the actual public would perceive for them to be. But in 1789, with political tensions in France at an all-time high, her once charmed life takes a disastrous turn. The public are fed up and they pretty much take to the streets in anger and in protest. And on July 14th, a raging mob storms the Bastille. Marie watches in horror as the king and queen, her former benefactors, lose their heads to the bloody symbol of the burgeoning revolution, the guillotine. But as the insurrection picks up steam, the bloodlust turns towards people with a connection to the crown. People like Marie Groscholtz. Marie's loyalties were questioned due to her time in the Palace of Versailles. She was arrested and then placed in prison and sentenced to death. So will Marie face the cruel blade of the guillotine? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's Paris in the 1790s. The French Revolution is in full swing, and the heads of royalist sympathizers are rolling in the streets. Next in line to face the guillotine is Marie Groscholtz, a former art tutor to the crown. So is this young artist about to meet her maker? 
huddled in her jail cell, the terrified Marie can do nothing but wait for her grisly end. She is preparing for her death by the guillotine. But with only hours to go before the blade is to drop, Marie's sentence is miraculously reprieved. Her savior is none other than her mentor, Dr. Philippe Curtius. He spoke to one of the generals who understood and recognized Marie's talents and thought it'll be an absolute waste to actually execute this woman. Now indebted to the revolution, Marie's artistic talents are put to morbid use. In exchange for her life, she's forced to make death masks of executed aristocrats to be paraded throughout the city as a show of gruesome justice. By the fall of 1794, the terror of the French Revolution finally subsides, allowing Marie to begin a new life. A year later, she meets and promptly marries a French engineer named Francois Tussaud. Now free to pursue her craft, Madame Tussaud takes to sculpting new wax figures of the rich and famous. Madame Tussaud was a very passionate woman. She lived for her art. And soon she takes her impressive collection to London, where she establishes a permanent gallery on Baker Street. That proved a massive success. Within a short period of time, became kind of a London institution. Over the next 55 years, her museum delights thousands with its growing collection of lifelike figures from past and present. And just before her death in 1850, the 81-year-old commits one final image to wax, a humble self-portrait, now on display at Madame Tussauds in New York. And today, these incredible wax figures tell the story of a brilliant and gifted woman who lived through history and dedicated her life to preserving it forever. Fast-paced San Diego, California became the birthplace of naval aviation when the first Navy pilots began training here in 1911. And celebrating this high-flying heritage is the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Within these walls, one can gaze at flying aces from World Wars I and II, a model of the aircraft carrier USS Yorktown, and a lethal Cobra helicopter replete with anti-tank missiles. But outside the museum's entrance is one colossal artifact that cannot be contained. The object is 82 feet tall, is stainless steel, and it weighs 267,000 pounds. According to archivist Alan Renga, this deadly missile launched an unexpected revolution in the most unlikely realm. This amazing piece of weaponry tells a surprising story that impacted almost every home in America. How did this monolithic missile inspire one of America's most well-loved household products? 1953, the height of the Cold War. The United States and the Soviet Union are locked in a potentially deadly game of nuclear one-upmanship. One aspect of the arms race is for each country to build nuclear weapons that are more powerful than the others. And on August 12th, the Soviets pull into the lead. They test their first hydrogen bomb with an unprecedented payload. The Russian atomic bomb was 20 times more powerful than America's nuclear weapons. Determined to reassert their supremacy, the Americans design a radical new way to deploy their nuclear missiles, one that eliminates a weak link in the delivery chain, the need to transport a warhead by plane. An airplane carrying a nuclear warhead could be easily spotted, detected, shot down, 
U.S. officials believe long-range missiles are the way to go. And they begin testing a new prototype capable of traveling much farther than their previous designs. They called it the Atlas SM-65. The Atlas SM-65 can travel 6,000 miles, putting most of the Soviet Union within U.S. striking distance. And one revolutionary feature makes this possible, a lightweight balloon tank made of stainless steel. These fuel tanks were capable of carrying the fuel needed for a long-range launch, but they only weighed a fraction of their predecessors. There is just one problem. Atmospheric moisture can quickly cause its exterior surface to oxidize. And if rust eats through the outside of the missile, the SM-65 might easily become a radioactive biohazard that could devastate the wrong country. This was a massive problem of global implications. Desperate for a solution, the Air Force looks for help from an unlikely source, a man named Norm Larson. Norm Larson was a self-taught chemist in his 30s. Larson owns the San Diego-based Rocket Chemical Company, an outfit that specializes in aerospace lubricants. Norm believes they can make an oil-based substance that would displace water from the missile's surface, virtually stopping rust in its tracks. It's a big job for an ultra-small company. Larson only had two employees besides himself. Larson and his team need to concoct a substance that can combat corrosion while withstanding several conflicting conditions. The freezing cold temperatures of the upper atmosphere where the missile will fly, and the searing heat of the ignition sequence. For months, they searched for the perfect mix of ingredients, altering the amounts after each test. But each concoction degrades under the extreme hot or cold temperatures it needs to withstand. After 39 tries, a frustrated Larson is on the verge of giving up. The whole process was more difficult than they could have ever imagined. They were nervous for the fate of their company and the fate of their country. Larson refuses to give up. He alters his recipe by including some unexpected but everyday ingredients, baby oil and petroleum jelly. And this time, his 40th try, the solution seems to stop corrosion. Excited and relieved, he brings his creation to the Air Force. They immediately coated the missile with Rocket Chemical Company's water displacement formula, and it seemed to work. The military is thrilled with the results, and the SM-65 Atlas is fully operational by 1959. The same type of missile as the one on display at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. But the miracle formula doesn't stay a military secret. The compound worked so well at uh, preventing rust that Larson's employees started using it at home, from fixing squeaks to opening door locks, anything you could think of. Larson soon realizes he has a potential commercial success on his hands, and so he asks NASA for permission to market the product for consumer use. To Larson's excitement, NASA gives him the green light, and before long, he's developed aerosol cans for his resale packaging. But he realizes Rocket Chemical Company's water displacement formula doesn't have a ring to it. Before it goes to market, his product needs a new name. Because the product emerged on the 40th try, he decided to call his creation WD-40. In 1958, WD-40 hits the shelves of American stores and is an immediate hit. 
Soon, the Rocket Chemical Company doubles in size and achieves annual sales in excess of 300 million. By 1993, that telltale blue and yellow can can be found in four out of five American homes. But as ubiquitous as WD-40 has become, its inventor makes sure to keep one thing top secret. WD-40 was never patented so that nobody would know its secret ingredients. The formula remains a trade secret. And today, this colossal column at the San Diego Air and Space Museum stands as a stoic witness to the chill of the Cold War that launched a popular product into the American landscape. Minneapolis, Minnesota. Bisected by the Mississippi River, this city of about 400,000 people has long profited from the use of hydropower to run its many factories and mills. And one building here celebrates this history, the Mill City Museum. Built into the ruins of what was once the world's largest flour mill, its artifacts include a middlings purifier used to remove the husks from wheat kernels, a steam engine tractor, and a model of the famous Pillsbury Mill. But there's one unlikely item that ensured the long-term success and health of this Midwestern city. The artifact is nine inches by eight and a half inches by five inches tall. It's made from mahogany and tinned iron with a cloth filter. According to visitor service manager, Patrick Funstein, this relic's roots lie in an explosive tragedy. This artifact is tied to an earth-shattering incident that transformed our local history. What is this device? And how is it connected to a disaster that changed an entire industry? May, 1878. Edward Witchy, a local teacher, is settling in for a quiet evening at home when the spring calm is suddenly shattered by a thunderous boom. Mr. Witchy felt the ground shake under his feet and ran outside to see a giant column of flame and smoke rising from the Minneapolis riverfront. The huge cloud of smoke is rising from the site of the Washburn A Mill, the city's largest flour mill. The Washburn A Mill had exploded. It had done so on levels from bottom to top that literally blew the roof 300 feet into the air. The surrounding area was leveled, grain elevators burning, rail cars blown apart, shattered glass. It was a perfect hailstorm of debris and destruction throughout the area. The explosion sets off an inferno which rages for hours. Conditions were so intense that rescue workers really couldn't get to the remains of the Washburn A-Mill till the next day. And what they find is total destruction. The mill had basically been blown from the earth and all the people inside had died. 14 night shift workers have perished. Four employees from neighboring mills are also dead. The mill's owner, C.C. Washburn, is devastated. And when the last ember burns out, investigators immediately dig for clues. What could possibly have caused this deadly explosion? Investigators sift through the carnage, desperate to uncover what triggered the blaze. But most of what's left of the building is shrouded in rubble, and with that comes very few clues. Experts can only offer a number of theories. One of the earliest theories, based on the fact that the mill sat in the middle of a giant rail yard, is that a boxcar filled with dynamite had been parked nearby and had exploded. 
But when experts analyze the destruction, this theory is quickly refuted. They observe that the mill's walls were blown outward. The explosion had to have come from the inside. This leads many to believe that the water turbines which power the mill were to blame. When water flows at very high speeds, the turbines can split the water pouring through them, leading to the production of excess hydrogen and oxygen. The hydrogen gas would have then filled the basement of the Washburn A mill and created the explosion from bottom up. But hundreds of factories worldwide operate on hydropower, and none have ever been destroyed by a hydrogen gas explosion, so this theory is quickly discarded. Weeks into the investigation, experts theorize that the explosion may have been caused by the very thing the mill was built to produce, flour. But how could something as innocuous as flour cause such a tragedy? Tests show that if high concentrations of flour dust and oxygen are present in a confined space, and just one flour particle is ignited by a heat or a flame, it can trigger a chain reaction. And the resulting explosion can be as powerful as if the flour were gunpowder. In the long run, scientists did confirm that it was a flour dust explosion that destroyed the mill. In the Washburn A itself, they were making almost 400,000 pounds of flour a day. Some of that powder gets in the air. Most likely, it was a spark in one of the millstones that ignited the flour, and that explosion sent a shockwave out, leading to the rapid bottom-to-top explosion. With this knowledge, C.C. Washburn is determined to keep other mills free from this dangerous dust. And working with a civil engineer named William de la Barre, he develops something that does just that. A dust collector, a prototype of which is now on display at the Mill City Museum. Much like in a household vacuum cleaner, flower dust is gathered into a main chamber. Made of a fine cloth, it traps dust particles so they cannot circulate back through the mill and build to dangerous levels. Washburn has these dust collectors installed at all his mills. And to prevent further tragedy, he shares this innovation with his competitors. Dust collectors increase the safety of mills throughout the world. Two years after the explosion that rocked Minneapolis, a new Washburn A mill opens on the same spot as its doomed predecessor. Thanks to the new dust collectors, it never experiences another flower explosion. And today, this model dust collector stands as a reminder of how one devastating tragedy made a worldwide industry safer for all. Colorado Springs, Colorado. To early settlers, the jagged peaks of the Rocky Mountain foothills that run up against this city offered the promise of incredible wealth during the territory's gold rush. Today, though, valuable metals can be found in the shadow of the Great Range, in a less rustic environment, the Money Museum. Here, artifacts such as an 1804 dollar coin, the nation's first steam-powered mint, and a scale used to weigh gold bullion help explore the history of legal tender. But even in this coin collector's paradise, there's one rarity that outshines the rest. It weighs approximately five grams, is about 20 millimeters in diameter. Curator Douglas Mudd knows that although this might look like your average five-cent piece, it is far from ordinary. This is one of the most valuable coins in the world. 
In fact, it is valued at $3.1 million. So how did this seemingly unexceptional nickel become one of the most sought-after coins ever produced? August 1920, Chicago. Coin collectors have descended on the city for a large conference, featuring exhibits of rare and valuable specimens. But the display of 40-year-old Samuel Brown, a businessman from Niagara Falls, New York, causes a sensation. He possesses what he says is an incredibly rare find, a 1913 Liberty Head nickel. This created an immediate sensation because there had been rumors circulating about the coin. No one had ever seen one. Even more intriguing, the U.S. Mint has no record of the show-stopping coin. It had supposedly halted production of the Liberty Head nickel in 1912. But this piece appears to be completely genuine. It looked like a mint product, but it had the wrong date on it. The mystery only deepens a few months later when Brown displays five 1913 Liberty Head nickels at another convention. Fellow collectors are dying to know more about the controversial coins. When he's questioned about them, he tells the story that these are the only five coins in existence. And incredibly, he won't tell anybody about how he knows this. Then, Brown refuses to display his collection in public again. And this creates more excitement about the coins as their mystery deepens. Three years later, reports emerge that Brown has sold all five of the rare relics. And soon, the new owner puts the nickels on the market for the princely sum of $2,000. So this is twice as much as the average American worker at the time makes in a year. Over the next two decades, interest in the coins only intensifies with one selling for what today would be an astonishing $36,000. The murky details of their provenance only seems to add to the nickel's appeal. Their mystique had made them one of the top-selling U.S. coins in existence. Then, in 1944, Samuel Brown passes away. Having never divulged where or how he first acquired the coins, it seems the secret of the 1913 Liberty Head nickels has gone with him. But nearly 20 years later, in 1963, a coin researcher named Don Taxe makes a discovery that puts a startling spin on the curious tale of the Liberty Nickel. When digging through government records at the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia, Taxe makes a startling discovery. Sam Brown was actually a Mint employee. He had worked at the Mint in 1912 and 1913. This new information stuns collectors. Prior to being decommissioned in late 1912, the Liberty Head Nickel was produced in Philadelphia. Taxe concludes Brown had access to critical coin-making materials. Don Taxe painted a picture in which Sam Brown, while working at the Mint late in the year, was able to alter one of the dies of a 1912 Liberty Head to a 1913 once he did so, researchers believe he furtively produced five of the coins with the express purpose of creating extremely rare collectibles. He knew that he could make a lot of money off of these. Knowing the coins would be considered stolen property, Taxe believes he kept their existence under wraps. Then, when the statute of limitations expired seven years later, 
Brown enacted a clever ruse to create demand for the currency he'd minted. He placed an ad in a very popular coin-collecting magazine at the time saying that he would purchase for $500 any 1913 Liberty Head nickel that someone would bring to him. This ignited rumors of the previously unknown coin's existence and set a considerable price. Then, once Brown displayed the specimens, the fervor took on a life of its own, and he reaped the benefits. But scholars acknowledge that Taxay's research does not paint a complete picture of the 1913 Liberty Head's origin. Because Sam Brown's dead and he never left any record, this is probably as close as we'll ever get to the actual truth without developing a time machine. Yet in the eyes of collectors, the coin's allure is untarnished. In 2013, a single 1913 nickel, like this one on display at the Money Museum, is sold at auction for $3.1 million. It is now worth 150,000% more than its original value. And today, this 1913 Liberty Head nickel, on display at the Money Museum in Colorado Springs, serves as a celebration of the mysterious journey of a truly unique coin, and the man whose daring ruse may have propelled it to remarkable heights. Topeka, Kansas, in the heart of America, is a bustling riverside city whose name is said to mean to dig good potatoes. And much of the region's wholesome agrarian past is preserved at the Kansas Museum of History. On display is a model of a Wichita tribe's grass house, a prefabricated diner, and a 1914 biplane from the very early days of aviation. But there is one artifact here that speaks of a tragic tale of family and freedom. The artifact is over six feet in length. The iron section comes to a point that is over 150 years old. According to museum curator Blair Tarr, this rusted metal object tells of one man's link to an incident that embroiled the nation. What happens next is an extraordinary story of unparalleled bravery. How did this spike hurdle the nation towards war? 1857. Nearly four million slaves live in the southern United States. But for one of them, everything is about to change. When the master of 42-year-old Dangerfield Newby moves from Virginia to Ohio, he grants the slave freedom. The only problem for Dangerfield Newby was is that his wife and children belonged to another master. And so they did not make the trip to Ohio. Although he does not yet have the money, Newby contacts his wife's owner and makes a plea to purchase her freedom. And for the sum of $1,500, he agrees. Certainly the chance to free your family is something that doesn't come up every day if you're a slave. Determined to earn the money, Newby finds work as a blacksmith. Now out in Ohio, he is still in communication with his wife back in Northern Virginia. In August 1859, Newby receives an alarming letter from his wife. In the letter, she writes, Dear husband, I want you to come and buy me as soon as possible. The last two years have been like a troubled dream to me. For if I thought I should not see you on this earth, life would have no charm for me. 
sensing the urgency of her message, Newby rushes to gather the remaining money, even getting funds from abolitionists sympathetic to his plight. And with his wife's letters in hand, he soon returns to Virginia prepared to purchase the freedom of the family he cherishes. But when he approaches the plantation owner, he receives a rude awakening. As it turns out, he wants more money. It's more money or nothing at all. A crestfallen newbie is convinced the owner will not relent. He probably wasn't sure what else to do. Newby begins making his way back to Ohio and soon meets a man with radical ideas. His name is John Brown. John Brown is very much anti-slavery. He wants to go into Virginia, and he wants to start a slave uprising. Newby is intrigued by Brown's fiery passion. Where Brown is planning to strike is not all that far from where his wife is. And Newby is thinking, this just might ultimately reunite me with my family. Brown plans to arm slaves for the uprising with 1,000 smuggled pikes, like the one now housed at the Kansas Museum of History. But Brown realizes the pikes alone will not power a successful rebellion. So he plans to raid a well-stocked armory in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. On the night of October 16th, the time has come to go down into Harpers Ferry. Brown and a group of 21 men, including Dangerfield Newby, set out across the Potomac River. At 4 a.m., they arrive in Harpers Ferry. They launch their assault and easily capture the barely guarded armory. With almost 100,000 muskets and rifles now at their disposal, their revolt is sure to be a success. But they face an unexpected surprise. There's no ammunition. Well, that is a problem. And this is where things start going awry for John Brown. Soon, the armory is surrounded by townspeople and Marines. The abolitionists are practically defenseless. Before Brown and his supporters can retreat, tragedy strikes. There's a gunfight, and in the midst of this, one of the townspeople fires upon Newby, and it catches Newby in the throat and kills him instantly. Dangerfield Newby's quest to free his wife ends. And soon, the revolt is quelled. Ten were killed outright in the raid. Seven were hanged. Only five actually survived. The leader of it all, John Brown, is eventually hanged. In the aftermath, the townspeople searched the bodies of the victims. They found at least three letters from Harriet Newby to her husband, which all make the same plea to come and get me. The press gets a hold of the story and runs with it. The letters are published. The whole story of the raid, this ignites the North. The tragic love story of Dangerfield Newby becomes a catalyst for the abolitionist cause. Some people might call it the last straw in a lot of ways. It's hard to avoid civil war after that. And six years later, with the end of the Civil War, Newby's wife and children are free once and for all. And today, this pike on display at the Kansas Museum of History is a physical reminder of the momentous events that once took the life of a man on his quest for freedom. From fantastic forgery to a devastating disaster, a famed freedom fighter to an unlikely invention. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.